Hello, micro friends. I'm Justine Dees, and welcome to the Joyful Microbe Podcast. It's the show all about the microbes we encounter in our daily lives. Thank you so much for tuning in. I can't wait to share the show with you. What's something from the microbial world you can go outside and almost be guaranteed to see? I'll give you a hint. They are those green, gray, yellow, orange, red, and other colorful splotches on trees and rocks. I once even saw one while I was mountain biking. It was growing on an old boot. (laughs) Those are lichens. But... What are these things that we call lichens? And what are they doing hanging out on rocks and other substrates that don't move? That's what we'll talk about in this episode of the podcast. Lichens fall within the microbial world because they are composed of microbes. You'll learn from lichenologist Dr. Clara Sharnagel why these organisms are so cool and how to enjoy them for yourself in your daily life. You can think of this as your introduction to lichens, learning from an expert in lichens. In this episode, we talk about what lichens are and how you can get the lichen eye. Are lichens lichens extremophiles? And what are they doing? Do they harm the surfaces they're attached to? And how in the world did they even get where they are? And how lichens reproduce and their fruiting bodies, lichen species names, the diversity of the different lichen partnerships, and how long they live, and can you actually see one as it forms? And then Clara shares about how it is to actually study lichens in the field versus studying them in the lab. And then Clara tells us about this awesome, cool project that she did called Lichen Buddies. And she is in a new position as the curator of lichenology. So she's going to tell us what exactly that means and how amazing it is. (laughs) And then we'll wrap it up with an at-home microbiology activity that will take your lichen hunt. If you've ever done one of these before and you've looked for lichens outside, it'll take your lichen hunt to the next level. So, I'm excited to share this with you because lichens are something that I've started noticing in my daily life within the past uh, few years and It really has changed the way that I view the world because I started seeing these really cool creatures everywhere. And so I'm excited for you to learn about them and then get to experience that in your daily life as well. But before we get into the show, let me just throw this out there. If you love Joyful Microbe and you want to show your support in some way, There is this cool thing called coffee, and it's a way that you can leave a virtual tip for Joyful Microbe to show your love 
and appreciation and help support all the things that I'm doing with this podcast. And it will help me with upkeep of the website and paying for all of the programs and things that I have to use to create this podcast. So it would mean the world to me if you would. And um, you can do so by clicking on the link in the show notes or just going to joyfulmicrobe.com, go to the bottom of the page and you'll see support Joyful Microbe and a button you can hit for coffee. All right. Thanks so much. And let's get on into the interview. Hi, Clara. Thank you so much for joining me on the Joyful Microbe podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, so we are going to talk about lichens because you have studied them for years. So, um, and your social media handle is actually at Lichen Lady. So <laughs> I love that. And in um, your bio says exploring the microcosmic world of lichens. So let's start out with talking about what exactly a lichen is. Yeah, I think. Um... A good place to start with that is actually where people may have encountered lichens before. So before I get into the actual biological description of what a lichen is, I'll say if you go outside and notice colorful splotches on the surfaces of trees or rocks, many of those colorful splotches are actually lichens. And particularly after it rains, you'll notice that those splotches get really vibrant and colorful. And those are lichens, for the most part. Some of them might be mosses and other things as well. So what a lichen actually is, is more than one thing. So when we look at a lichen, it's actually two different organisms, sometimes more than two different organisms, living together in symbiosis. And the main two organisms that live together are a fungus and algae. Sometimes it's a fungus and cyanobacteria, but in either case, um, either the algae or the cyanobacteria is doing photosynthesis. Awesome. I love that you describe them as colorful splotches. I think of it kind of like I think I described it to someone as they look like splotches of paint on trees and things. <laughs> Absolutely. I've and collected splotches of paint off the sides of trees thinking they were lichens. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, so we can all feel good knowing that even an expert has mistaken um, paint for a lichen. So. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and yeah, I've noticed too that after the rain that they look so vibrant and beautiful. I actually noticed that yesterday outside that they're just, they get to be so pretty and colorful. Um, so what is it that changes that? Why is it that they look more colorful after the rain? That is an excellent question. Basically what's happening is they are becoming metabolically active so lichens are really cool in that they can survive a lot of extreme conditions, and this includes drying out. So they can basically dry out completely but not die. Um, 
And they're sort of different from, you know, a leaf or a plant. If it dries out, it'll wither and turn brown. A lichen just sort of sits there and waits for conditions to get better. So this includes when it rains. And of course, the rain provides water, which is important for all life, but specifically for the process of photosynthesis. So basically what's happening is the lichens, in a way, are waking up and they are, you know, being able to use that water to, to run a bunch of processes within them, including photosynthesis with the algae or the cyanobacteria. And that's really neat. Um, so I talked to someone about extremophiles. Her name was Dr. Adrian Kish. That was a previous episode. And um, it makes me think about that, that they kind of are sitting there waiting in these kind of harsh conditions. So are they considered extremophiles? I think... Certain lichens are. um, Yeah, I think certain lichens would be considered extremophiles because you can find them all the way like at the tide line. Um, So really salt tolerant. You can Mm. find them um, at basically close to the north and south poles. um, So very, very cold tolerant. Um, But Perhaps the average lichen that you encounter, all of those colorful splotches on trees and rocks, might not be classified as extremophiles. They might just be, yeah, like you said, tolerant. Hmm. That's really cool. They're so neat. Once you start noticing them, it's like you start to see them everywhere. I mean... I just, it's like your eyes are opened and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, there's one on my mailbox. I can't believe I didn't see that before. <laughs> I actually, I actually call that getting the like an eye because it's totally yeah. true. Once you see them, you can't stop seeing them <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> it's so fun though, because their, their colors are, are really beautiful. I've, I've had people say that they would love to, and I feel the same way too. It's like a lot of the colors are very nice and they'd be good for um, colors for decorating your house, <laughs> I mm. think. Um, so we're seeing them everywhere. They're on concrete, rocks, um, and they're, I mean, I saw them one time when I was skiing. They were like on one of the pilings, concrete pilings, mm. and um, in the snow. <laughs> so what is it that they're doing Oh, man. (laughs) What are they doing? Actually, in a way, this is one of the questions that I'm still trying to answer. Um, Sort of what what happens in the day of the life of a lichen is we don't fully know. But um, Hmm. more broadly speaking, they are living. They are symbiosing. So, you know, yeah, in terms of You see lichens on rocks, on these pilings, on trees. Um, We've seen lichens growing on, you know, bone um, or Mm. cars that have been abandoned. So Mm. basically lichens will grow on any substrate that stands still long enough <laughs> and doesn't, you know, try to get them off basically. <laughs> um, and there, of course there are, you know, different lichen species will be specific to different kinds of substrates. So there are some lichens that you only find on rocks or only find on trees, whereas there are some that can, you know, grow on a bunch of different things. What they're doing there, um, in addition to just sort of 
living in this beautiful little sort of symbiotic system where the fungus provides a lot of the structure and um, some protection to the algae. And of course, um, in exchange, the algae is photosynthesizing and providing those sugars to the fungus. Um, they're also doing other things. If we, if we sort of step, step back from these, you know, tiny little um, composite creatures here and, and think about what they're doing maybe at the ecological scale. So specifically the lichens that grow on rocks, they actually, many of them secrete tiny, teeny tiny amounts of acid, which over, you know, decades and centuries will break down the rocks and over time will actually contribute to mineral release and soil formation. So hmm. they're playing, playing long-term ecological roles in that sense. In a much more immediate sense, a lot of lichens um, are in their own small way, but it adds up given that we see lichens everywhere playing a role in the carbon cycle and even carbon sequestration. Um, as well as of course the water, the water cycle and um, the nitrogen cycle as well, specifically lichens that contain cyanobacteria because those cyanobacteria can actually fix nitrogen out of the air, which is super cool. Wow. So it sounds like they are doing quite a lot that we don't even realize. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's really neat. Um, okay, so if they're on things like statues, um, are they where you said that they're secreting some acid and that could break down? And um, is that going to be harming the surface or is it really just way too long of a process for it to be anybody's concern? In general, it's such a long process that it shouldn't be a concern. There are some interesting cases at uh, Machu Picchu, for example. They are taking a more sort of serious approach to the lichens because they are concerned that, you know, given enough time, Machu Picchu will be eaten away by the lichens, or at least mm. um, the integrity of the structure um, could be challenged. And, you know, that, uh, but think, thinking about how old that already is, I mean, we're talking at that level of time um, that it would start being a concern potentially. Hmm. How did they get there exactly? The lichens. Yeah. Um, there are a few different ways that they can move around. Um, and it's, you know, all basically in thinking about the next generation. So plants and seeds, uh, plants and trees like give off seeds. Um, and the seeds can either be moved by animals or the wind or water, find a new place and grow. And that's how they move around in a similar way. Lichens can either send off so just the fungal part can send off fungal spores. Those spores will fly mostly on the wind um, and land somewhere else. And there's a few challenges for that spore right away. Has it landed on a substrate that it can actually grow on? And after it starts growing, can it find an algal partner to start growing with and form a lichen? So... Because of this challenge, um, certain lichens have evolved um, 
an alternative strategy, which is to send both partners off in little in little packages, basically. And there's a few different kinds. Um, basically, there's something called ceridia, which are just little like fluffy balls of algae and fungal hyphae. Um, and then there's slightly more solid structures, which under, a, you know, with a hand lens or under a dissecting scope look kind of like little fingers, which are called icedia. And both of those can break off and again, be dispersed mostly by wind. Um, also, um, they can, they can uh, you know, be dispersed by rainfall um, or possibly even be picked up on the you know, feet or fur of tiny creatures uh, traveling across the lichens. But we, we don't know as much about the role of animal dispersal. It's mostly wind, I think. Hmm. And so is that kind of similar to mushroom spores? Yeah, absolutely. How are the fruiting bodies different? Because some of them even look like little mushrooms, sort of. Um or like inverted mushrooms, like the golf tee kind of looking ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So most of them um, have more of that structure, like you said, of the golf tee looking, um, which we call um, apothecia. And yeah, so they look kind of like little cups, um, mm. as opposed to little caps like on mushrooms. Um, and yeah, so a lot of them, a lot of them have that. And so I, I say they look like little cups, but actually, if you're looking straight at a lichen, they look more like little discs, just like little mm. discs raised above the surface. Some of them, again, depending on which lichen species, some of them can get quite, you know, large. Some of them can be quite colorful. There are there are lichens that have red apothecia, which are really beautiful and really stand out. Um, and there are a few other uh, structures that lichens form as well. There's um, lichens that we group just based on how they look uh, and call them script lichens, as in script as in handwriting. And it's because they form uh, these fruiting bodies called lorelli, which look like, basically look like really primitive hieroglyphics or something. They're really beautiful. Hmm. Um, and, but yeah, the, the, the structures differ, but the whole idea is the same, which is there's kind of a raised or sometimes even embedded structure within the lichen. And this contains um, spores, which are then released uh, when conditions are right. Mm, that's so cool. And it's fun to find the different kinds that are out there. Um so <laughs> you said species, and then that got me thinking, like, how weird that is that lichens have species, but then they are also two two or more individuals as well. So how do you wrap your head around that, that you have a species for the lichen, but then you also have two species that are in there? Is that right? That's that's right. And it is confusing. <laughs> and I think, you know, as as we as scientists started to actually understand what lichens were, there certainly were debates as to what is the best way to name these things. Um, because one thing I should say is at least what, what we know right now is um, if you separate the, the partners of a lichen and say, try to grow them 
in the lab. They'll grow, but they won't look anything like the lichen itself. And that hmm. many of the algae do grow freely on their own in nature. And again, they never form anything that looks like a lichen. So it's only when they come together that they form this thing that we recognize as a lichen. And so you'd think that there might be a name unique to that, but then it would be confusing because it's a name for two species. So the, the solution that we've come up with, but again, it can make it a bit confusing when we're talking about lichen species, is the species name refers to the fungal partner. And one of the mm. reasons for this is that the fungus forms most of the structure that we're looking at of the lichen. And so what we'll say is, um, you know, for example, one of the script lichens is called Graphis scripta, and that is the fungal species. So we'll say this is Graphis scripta, and its partner is, you know, such and such algal species. So hmm. that's how we sort of describe them and talk about species is from the fungal perspective. Okay. Um, I've been reading the book Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake, and he talks a little bit about how the partnerships in the lichen can be swapped around or that there it's not like you always have one fungus and one algae. Is that right? That is right. There's basically every iteration that you can imagine some lichen somewhere has done. <laughs> so there, um, again, if we're thinking from the fungal perspective, one, one fungus, and let's say both at, at the species and individual level, can associate, like form a lichen with both a green algae and a cyanobacteria. Um, if we zoom out from the individual level, the same species of fungus can associate with different species of algae. Again, you know, if you're thinking about these spores landing somewhere and trying to form a partnership, it would be to their advantage to not be so specific that if they can't find this one species of algae, then they cannot form a lichen. Um, so there is, there is some, some generalism in the association. Again, it depends. Um, basically, for every generalist lichen, we can find a lichen that has a much more specific relationship and almost one-to-one. -one. Um, and yeah, so it's, <laughs> there's a lot of nuance um, going on and we're still, the, the great mystery um, that is something that intrigues basically everyone who's looking at lichens right now is, okay, with all of this, flexibility in you know coming together and forming a partnership and forming a lichen how do they then form a lichen what <laughs> so this is this is um Gosh. something that still intrigues us yeah that's crazy so because it's like they're you can't really see it form necessarily because they've been around so long how long do they live? They can live for quite a long time. Um, decades, possibly. Like, um, I, I believe we have examples, actually, of centuries-old lichens. Um, 
I may have said that wrong too. Maybe you can't. Can you see them form? Not really. Um, I mean, there are new lichens forming all the time. So it's not like we're only dealing with ancient lichens when we go out somewhere. But the actual, yeah, coming together of either a fungal spore and an algae or even uh, a small ceridium landing somewhere, we would have to be, you know, basically combing the entire environment with a microscope to be able to see this early part of the lichen uh, formation. So by the time we're seeing them with our eyeballs, they've already become the lichens that, you know, that we see. So, Hmm. yeah, so it's challenging to see them actually form. And that's why uh, quite a few of us um, have, have tried, are trying to grow them in the lab, which of course is an artificial situation and there's challenges within that. But at least we can begin to see what might happen as, you know, a, a germinating spore encounters some algae. Um, hmm. But yes, they can live quite a long time. Um, in in a way, you almost wonder if they can, you know, get close to that idea of immortality because because they can basically just survive so many extreme conditions. Um, so what? What possibly limits them is actually if something happens to their substrate. Um, So like they're growing on a tree, they're really old, but then the tree falls down or is cut down. Well, then that's that's the end of that. Um, Or, you know, okay, again, talking really long spans of time, but they're growing on a rock and eventually the rock breaks down. Um, So so I don't I don't think we know the upper limit of of like an age. but it 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 seems to go along with this idea that they actually grow quite slowly. Um, so yes, yeah, slow growing, long lived, able to deal with uh, fairly extreme conditions for the mm. most part. <laughs> I just had a thought. It's very specific and silly, but um, I, I saw in someone's house one time that their fireplace, the bricks, had been they had sourced it from outside and built up the fireplace that way. And the bricks had lichens on them. And (laughs) and I thought that was so cool. But then I wondered if this was my house, would I spray them with like a water bottle or something? (laughs) Because they would get really dried up inside. I'm just wondering about your thoughts on that. (laughs) Yeah. How would you take care of a lichen that lived inside? (laughs) Um. Yeah, I think it would depend on where the fireplace is because there would be the issue of drying out, um, but then also the amount of light that's available. So let's say even if you were spraying them, but the fireplace was in like a dark den, then the lichens probably wouldn't do so well. Um, But if it was like in a lit room, I think you could actually try like spraying them with a water bottle (laughs) um, and see what happens because, yeah, lichens, um, they are... They are very amusing to lichenologists, the people who research them, because they seem to be able to grow in all of these extreme conditions. And then when we try to pluck (laughs) pluck them out of nature and grow them experimentally, they're like, um, no, not today. (laughs) And we're like, but you've survived 
the extremes of outer space on the outside of the space station. Why won't you grow in my lab? <laughs> That's so weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> so perhaps spraying them on the <laughs> fireplace would work, or perhaps not. I cannot guarantee it. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Um, okay, so we've been talking a lot about lichens, but I kind of want to hear about how you originally got interested in lichens. Where did this all begin? Oh man, it's it's a two-part story because I actually first was passionate about fungi in general, and this goes way back. So <laughs> I'm originally from Miami, Florida, which is quite a beautiful uh, you know, subtropical environment. There's the beaches, there's the Everglades. The um, My parents' backyard was always full of like interesting wildlife. Turns out it was full of lichens, but I didn't know that at the time because <laughs> I didn't have the lichen eye. But um, when we were quite little, um, we would go on family camping trips to North Carolina. So this is the um, Great Smoky Mountains. Again, quite a lush, beautiful place but very different from subtropical Florida. And it rained quite a bit the very first time we went. But after the rain, all of these mushrooms seemed to just magically, of course, to I think it was like six years old or something at the time, they seemed to just magically appear. And they were all these crazy shapes and colors. Um, and I was just in awe with these things and so my parents being the amazing parents that they are got me a little mushroom field guide from like the local shop and so I spent quite a bit of the camping trip just trying to identify all of the mushrooms that we encountered and it became a lifelong passion but you know you don't really learn in schools that there is such a career as a mycologist someone who studies fungi and so I never thought of it as like something to actually pursue, you know, as a profession. It was more just like this interest on the side. Um, mm -hmm. And that fast forward <laughs> to um, college um, and I was, you know, interested in so many different things. I was taking classes all over the place, which meant that as it was about time to graduate, suddenly I was like, what am I going to do with this like, you know, hodgepodge of classes what am I going to do with my life? And my mom reminded me of this passion for fungi that I have. So I looked around for opportunities to say, volunteer with a lab to learn some more about them. I was in Chicago at the time. And there was this group at the Field Museum of Natural History, who were working on these things called lichenized fungi, which I had never heard of mm -hmm. before. But I contacted them. And of course, at the time, I did not appreciate their enthusiasm. Like, oh my goodness, you want to volunteer with us and work on lichens? Of course. And to me, I was just like, oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I, I now see the other side of that. Like, oh my goodness, you're enthusiastic about lichens? Yes, come to me. <laughs> um, and basically, one of like, you know, so I, I was there, I was working with a couple different um people who were graduate students at the time. So uh, Matthew Nelson and um, Todd Vidhelm. And they, they were very patient with me. They taught me a lot about lichens. And I just remember this day where I was sitting with Matt looking at lichens through a, a microscope. And we were talking about like all these cool facts about lichens, like the fact that they can live basically under, you know, layers of 
ice in anterior Antarctica and still survive. And like, he just like was so enthusiastic. He was like giggling with excitement about how cool lichens are. And again, me like young college student seeing this grad student scientist just giggling about how cool something is. I was like, yeah, I think I found my thing. Um, Hmm. So yeah, I've, I've been fascinated by lichens as well as just general fungi and fungal symbioses ever since. I love that. And um, so you went on and got a PhD and what was that in? So I did a master's first, which actually, that's why I mentioned fungal symbiosis. So I deviated slightly from the passion for lichens and studied mycorrhizal fungi, which is a symbiosis between fungi and plants, and it, it takes place via the plant roots. But then, um, yes, for my PhD, I realized lichens are this thing that I'm really passionate about, so I'm going to dedicate my PhD and quite possibly the rest of my life to, <laughs> <laughs> to researching this, um, because there's just so many, so many questions. Um And yeah, so I went to Michigan State University working in the herbarium with Alan Prather. And we, I was interested in patterns of diversity. So I really just wanted to get to know kind of actually what we started this interview with, which is like, why do we see lichens where we do? And, you know, how, how do we understand that? Um, So I wanted to investigate this pattern that's been observed for many, many other groups of uh, plants and animals, um, which is this thing called the latitudinal diversity gradient, where we see a ton of species and really high diversity in the tropics. And then as you go either north or south from there, you see fewer species. Um, And, you know, if you think of the the strongest correlate to that, of course, is climate. Um, so you get basically climate that is a lot more conducive to life and metabolic activity at the at and around the equator. And then as you go to the extremes, of course, um, you get much more severe seasons, um, extreme weather, freezing. Um, so there's a lot of things that could um, sort of be driving that. I should stop myself there because, you know, we could do a whole podcast on the latitudinal <laughs> diversity gradient itself. But what interested me in pursuing this question is, first of all, no one had asked it for lichens. Yeah. Um, and then within that, I wondered if they might actually be an exception to the rule. Because if you go to places like um, the Arctic tundra or even the Boreal, um, one of the sort of dominant life forms that you see there are lichens. And we know that they can tolerate these really extreme conditions. So there was this question of, well, if they're not, say, bothered by these extreme conditions that um, so many other species are, maybe maybe they don't follow this pattern. But um, so I decided to sort of approach this question in a few different ways, but one of it was by actually going to the field myself and 
surveying lichen diversity at a bunch of different latitudes, um, basically from from the boreal forest in Canada down to the Amazon rainforest in Peru. And what I found from that data is actually they do follow a latitudinal diversity gradient. So even though we see a lot of species in the far north of lichens, we just find even more in the tropics. And so, <laughs> so it was actually really cool to see that they follow the same pattern too and really... Um, yeah, sort of, sort of opens up new questions in that study. Um, and then also, yeah, provided uh, some more understanding of what's actually going on with the lichens themselves. And it was fun because I, you know, we're still in the process of verifying this, but I may have actually, you know, found some undescribed species because there's just, there are so many species, particularly in the tropics that we have yet to encounter all of them. <laughs> That's really neat. It's cool to know that they still kind of follow this pattern that's expected. I mean, it would have been cool to find something totally different, but I think it's neat to see that life tends to follow this pattern. Yeah. Um, and it also sounds like it was probably a lot of fun to get to travel um, and do field work. So can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to study lichens um, in the field versus working in the lab? Absolutely. Yes. Um, I, I really love fieldwork because like many people who are drawn to the study of biology, I love being outside. I love exploring. I love being in nature. So I was, I was very much naturally drawn to that being a part of my PhD research is doing something in the field. And that was a, a tremendously amazing experience. Uh, I, yeah, life changing in a lot of ways. Um, mm. I got to, I got to visit so many different places and actually really get to explore very different kinds of um, biomes. So there was like tropical rainforest, there was subtropical forest, temperate forest, the boreal forest, which I had never actually been to before, um, and you know just the the different characters of each of these forests. And then of course the different characters of the lichen communities that I encountered in each of these places, which were quite different, um, was, was really fantastic and amazing. One of, one of the things, um, that was really impactful for me was actually sort of more on the logistical side of field work. So, you know, you plan this grand project and then you're like, okay, how do I do this? You know, how do I just like go to these places? So I had a ton of help, of course, um, from collaborators at my university, um, collaborators in each of these countries or collaborators associated with like the different um, sort of forest research sites that I was working at. And so I just always was so amazed at how helpful people were. And it went beyond that too, because again, um, aside from a few of my sites, you know, all visiting all these sites involved traveling to different countries. And even though um, embarrassingly, like I tried to learn Spanish, but I was, you know, 
toddler level at best. And so a lot of, <laughs> a lot of navigating became, you know, pointing and gesticulating and, and, you know, spanglishing my way through it. Um, but that's, that's what I found so fantastic is random strangers would help me. And it hmm. really, for me, I, I know not everyone has this experience with fieldwork, so I feel very fortunate. But um, for me, fieldwork became this like reinvigorating faith in humanity kind of experience, as well as this beautiful immersion in nature and lichens and things like that. Um, so that that was really tremendous. I think another way that my fieldwork differs from a lot of a lot of biologists and ecologists who do fieldwork is it's very lightweight. When a lichenologist goes into the field, they only need a few basic tools. Um, a hand lens, a collecting tool, so that can be a field knife, or if you're collecting off of rocks, you might need a hammer and chisel, so that gets a little bit heavier, but not too bad. Um, and then some paper packets to put your lichens in. And then if you need to collect some metadata, so like a GPS to get coordinates um, or any sorts of like thermometers or, or DBH tapes to measure the size of trees. But that's about it. Um, and I feel very fortunate that, you know, my the stuff I need to carry is pretty lightweight. And then also, so I'm not studying things that are going to hide or run away. Mm. The lichen I see on that side of a tree today is going to be the lichen I see on that side of the tree tomorrow, um, which is a really <laughs> fun <laughs> thing about studying lichens that I, I very much enjoy. Um, contrast that with the lab experience. Um, mm. I, I sort of alluded to this earlier, but it's it's quite a different experience. There's there's actually, I would say, a lot more challenges to working with lichens in the lab than working with lichens in the field. Again, they have this funny way of of not wanting to grow <laughs> in the lab um, <sighs> for whatever reason, um, but also just in general, they grow quite slowly. And so um, to have enough lichen to do any sort of experiment with takes a lot longer than, say, for some of our more well-known model species like Arabidopsis, a mustard plant, or a Drosophila, the fruit flies. Um, so it's it's certainly, you know, we're, we're a bit of a ways from having a, a, a good model system for lichens in the lab, but we're working on it. Um, and then, yeah, it's just, it's, it's really exciting, but in a totally different way from field work, what I'm currently working on is, is more lab-based and it's diving into the molecular side of things. So really looking at the DNA and the RNA and what, you know, literally, um, but then also at the molecular level, pulling lichens apart and seeing what's going on inside. Wow. That's really neat. It's cool to think about the different things that you take with you too. It's like we could almost like pack our own toolkit to <laughs> go out and explore lichens ourselves mm -hmm. based on what you told us. Um, so if we did want to collect like a piece of a lichen, is that bad to do because they take so long to grow? Like as just people that are not doing research, um, should is there anything we should be careful about? Yeah. Um, 
I like to generally follow a convention that was taught to me by some of my earliest lichen mentors, which is Rick and Jean Seavey at Everglades National Park. And basically, they they did emphasize this idea that lichens take a really long time to grow. By the time we're seeing them, um, even even a very small lichen could be decades old, or at least, you know, quite a few years old. Um, and so thinking about, you know, taking a piece of that, um, or taking the whole thing, you know, what, what have you just taken out of the environment? And so his rule was, you always make sure you can see at least one other individual of that lichen you're about to take before you take that one. And if you don't, don't, don't take it. Um, and I think that's a really good rule. And I, I do try to respect that even in like these biodiversity surveys and things where you're like, I just want to collect everything that I see. Um, I, you know, obviously scientists do have a history of, of taking that to extremes <laughs> that have not been fantastic um, with other organisms in the past. And so I think it's something to be mindful of, especially as there is still so much we don't know about lichens and, you know, we're, I think we're just beginning to be at the level of being able to say, you know, whether a lichen species might be sensitive or endangered um, or what have you, because we finally have enough data to say that. But certainly before then, you know, you wouldn't know if the thing that you're collecting is is super rare um, or not. Um, so, yeah, that, that was sort of a, a long way around your question. Um, I think... You know, if if someone is enthusiastic in learning about lichens, like they actually want to collect a little piece to take it back to um, look at under a microscope or something, I think that's really fantastic. But yeah, my general sort of thing I would suggest is appreciate lichens where they are and bring a hand lens and a camera so that you can, you know, really take a good look at them where they're growing um, but then, then let them keep doing that at their very slow, uh, pace. Okay. So don't cut off a piece and take it with you. Generally, um, that would be my recommendation. I certainly, you know, I, I know that people will still have an inclination to do this like, like we do with everything, you know, some of us collect wildflowers or, um, rocks or what have you, um, but so that's just sort of just a general caution. Um, and I think, you know, there are, there are exceptions. Um, so if, if you see like a branch that has fallen down from the canopy, often those are quite covered with lichens, beautiful lichens, but that mm. branch that has fallen down, like those lichens are just going to get eaten up by snails and slugs or, you know, dry up and die. And so those you could probably yeah. take without worrying about it because they're not going to they're not going to keep thriving where they are. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's really cool. If, um, so if we see a branch or something that's fallen, then maybe we could snag a little piece. Mm -hmm. Um, would it actually damage or kill the lichen if you take a piece away from the whole organism? That's a great question. And as far as we know, no. I think there are some lichenologists who have actually sort of like gone back to places where they've sampled to see, you know, what sort of the long-term effects are. And yeah, if you've left a piece of the lichen there, it should be all right. Um, 
it, you know, again, it may depend on like the time of the year that you're doing this. Um, but for the most part, they're pretty resilient. So if you've taken a piece, but not the whole thing, the piece that you left behind should continue to grow. Well, it sounds like a good rule to just, if we're going to take anything, take it from something like a branch that's fallen. Um, but that's good to know that if we, <laughs> you know, if someone cuts off a piece, then it most likely will still be fine. Yeah. Um, okay. So I saw a project on your website that you worked on called Lichen Buddies. And so I want you to tell everybody what that is. And have you heard of giant microbes before? Yes. Lichen Buddies were in part inspired by giant microbes. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit about that or of that. And um, if if no, if someone has not heard of giant microbes, they are these stuffed microorganisms. So if you instead of getting a stuffed teddy bear, you get a stuffed bacteria. <laughs> and um, so those are really fun to get. But then you created lichen buddies, and um, so I want you to tell everybody what that's all about. Yeah, so I was absolutely inspired by giant microbes. I have quite a collection of giant microbes myself. <laughs> um, and yeah, I wanted something that could either be kind of like giant microbes in that it's something that particularly children, but really anyone who's a child at heart can interact with um, <laughs> as a way, as kind of like a cute and cuddly way to get to know lichens. Um and in addition to giant microbes, I was inspired by this Saturday Night Live sketch with Christopher Walken, where he's in this <laughs> greenhouse and all the plants have googly eyes on them. And, you know, he talks about how, well, you have to put googly eyes on them to make them more relatable so you know where you stand. And so, of course, when I made Lichen Buddies, <laughs> I had to put googly eyes on them, um, <laughs> even though I do have to stress that lichens, of course, do not actually have have eyes. Um, so, <laughs> so what, I'm laughing because Clara shared the video with me ahead of time. So I can imagine every bit of it and I'll link to it in the show notes so everyone can see that. Yes. Oh, such so great for a laugh. Um, yeah. So what lichen buddies are, they are either made out of felt or a pipe cleaner. So they're, they're definitely more two dimensional than say the giant microbes are. So they're not stuffed with anything. Um, but yeah, so like soft, cute versions, um, but they are meant to represent specific lichen species. So I I make them, yeah, like I said, out of felt or a pipe cleaner or a combination of the two, put googly eyes on them, and then also make little cards to go with them. Um, and these cards have a photograph of the actual lichen uh, species and some information about it. So, you know, you can, you can get to know your lichen buddy, um, as, as it would be in nature. And I started doing this as, um, a giveaway for some, um, like we have, uh, science festivals and the herbarium at Michigan state university would like have activities. And so that was, that was one of them, but it, it has, taken many different iterations um, over the years. So I've actually made it into an activity unto itself. So I've set up like a sort of miniature environment in a room. So you have like 
things that represent trees, things that represent rocks, etc. And then children have to be lichenologists and go and collect their lichen buddies. But then they have to record, you know, did you did you collect it from a tree or a rock or the ground? Did you collect it um, from the north or the south part of the room? Um, and so they would get you know, a sort of like little practice of what it's like to be a lichenologist. And then they would get to take home their lichen buddies. I love that. That is so cool. Do you offer that online anywhere that people can kind of download and that activity? Oh, um, if I don't, I should add that to my website. I, I had written up a whole description of it, um, but that might've gotten lost in the, in the ether somewhere. So, but yeah, I can put that on my website. I love that. I think that's such a neat idea for kids to be able to practice being a lichenologist. I don't think that that's, I mean, like you said, it wasn't something you knew about till you were older that someone could actually do that for a living. So I think that's so cool. Um, And um, we'll link to all of that stuff in the show notes so everyone can go and find the lichen buddies. Um, But Let's see. So next for you, you are moving on to a new position at the University of California, Berkeley Herbarium as the Tucker Curator of Lichenology. So what's that going to be like? I am very excited about that. So my as a curator of lichenology or a curator of anything, really, you are responsible for a collection And this is something I'm very passionate about. Um, All the way back in high school, one of my first sort of volunteer jobs was at a a herbarium and really getting to know what, what that's all about. And basically, I talk about they are collections, but you can actually think of it as a library. So Mm -hmm. generally, herbaria are libraries of plants, but we also have lichen collections. So it's a library of lichens. So you have many different... um, species that have been preserved and then cataloged. And so if you are trying to learn about a certain species or learn about taxonomy of a bunch of species or learn about the distribution of species, these are really great resources for that. They also just serve as like actual physical records of what goes on in the world. Um, And so that's a really valuable resource as well. And of course, there's a whole bunch of things beyond that that you can do, especially now with molecular tools or tools where we're able to visualize things without um, destructive sampling. It opens up, you know, a whole new world of getting to know the lichens that we've already collected. So a big part of my job will be basically maintaining the collection adding to it, um, as well as inviting researchers to come and use it for these, you know, various um, sorts of questions that I already outlined. But another part of my job will be um, doing my own research. So continuing to sort of look at some of these questions that I've expressed big passion about um, throughout this interview. Um, But then also, yeah, helping people to get to know what lichens are. And so I'm sure lichen buddies will feature somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we'll do field trips and uh, workshops and things like that um, to, yeah, really help people to get to know collections as well as lichens. That sounds amazing. 
I am so excited for you. <laughs> um, okay, so what activity could everyone do that's related to lichens that you could recommend to us? Yeah, so one of one of the more straightforward activities, which would just involve going out and looking at lichens, um, so they don't have to worry about my whole spiel about collecting them or not, is yeah, just going outside. Uh, in your local area and seeing what kinds of lichens you can find. So generally, unless, unless you're in, unfortunately, a really polluted part of a city, you should be able to go outside and find some lichens somewhere, um, whether it's growing on, you know, yeah, brick walls or on trees or on rocks or even on the sidewalk itself. Um, and so, yeah, being able to go outside See if you can find lichens. That's step number one. Step number two is what kind of lichens are you seeing? So when I talked about these sort of like splotches of paint before, that's generally describing crustose lichens. So these are, we call them crusts because they basically are flat, super flat, or even partially within uh, the substrate. So you could barely, you know, aside from the fact that they're this splash of color, you could barely distinguish them from, say, the bark of the tree or the side of the wall. Then you have um, these ones that we call folios, um, which means leafy, and they look quite leafy. And, you know, often if people have heard of lichens, they've probably heard of Loberia pulmonaria, which is the lung lichen, which is this large, green, um, leafy lichen, uh, really beautiful. Um so there's those structures. And then um, basically the third main structure of lichen that you can see are fruticose. And those can be quite three-dimensional, quite bushy. They can look like little tufts or pom-poms um, or even like tiny trees. Um, and there's quite a few different species. Some of them grow right on the ground um, uh, or on trees. And so basically as an activity, you can go out and see what proportion of each of these kinds of lichen structures you can find. And that can tell you a little bit about the environment that you're in. So oh. um, again, you know, if you're in a highly polluted area, you might see more crusts um, versus, you know, some of the really leafy and really fruticose species prefer nicer air. <laughs> it can hmm. tell you, um, you know, you'd probably know this about the environment you're in already, but it can tell you a little bit about precipitation patterns. So if you're in a place that um, either gets a certain kind of amount of rain or actually gets a lot of fog, you will find a lot more of these three-dimensional lichens. Whereas mm -hmm. if you're in a place like the lowland um, tropical forests, on the sides of trees, you'll see mostly crusts because they have to deal with kind of just like constant saturation um, at that level. So, um, so yeah, so the, the structures can tell you a bit about um, where you're at. But then also there's some fun colors uh, that you can look out for as well, specifically orange. So um, orange and yellow, I guess, but um, orange... Um, there are some groups of, some species of lichens that are nitrophilic. 
So they love nitrogen. So if you're actually in an environment that has a lot of nitrogen, um, and this can either be coming from air pollution, unfortunately, or say you're um, up on a mountain and you see a rock that has a bunch of orange lichens on it, that may actually be where a little mammal lives. And then, you know, that's its toilet rock. And you can tell (laughs) from the lichens. (laughs) Wow. Yep. (laughs) So I have no idea. Yeah. So (laughs) that's so funny. That's awesome. Oh, man. Yeah. So that's a fun thing to keep an eye out for. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. I love all these tips. This is so fun. This will make looking at lichens even better. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, did you have anything else to add? Um, no, not specifically. Um, I mean, you know, the, the lichen hunt can get more and more nuanced, but I think that's plenty to get uh, the listeners started. Oh, yeah. That'll be really fun. I love that. Um, okay, if we did find one that fell on the ground and we wanted a, a branch that fell on the ground that had a lichen, how would we go about looking at it under the microscope? Mm. Yeah. So if you have a hand lens or, yeah, better yet, a dissecting microscope, that's a great place to start. First of all, just because, um, you know, of course, to me, I'm highly biased. Lichens look beautiful just to the naked eye. But when Mm -hmm. you put them under a dissecting microscope, you see that there's so much more detail that we don't even see. Um, So much more texture, um, different, you know, sort of layers of color. So it's kind of like, it's kind of just going like on a safari <laughs> mm-hmm. um, across the landscape of this single lichen. And actually it's really fun because you can end up finding, finding out that there's a ton of little itty bitty critters that live mm-hmm. on these lichens. So springtails, um, little spiders, um, pseudoscorpions. I don't know if everyone will think these are cute, but I do. Um, <laughs> if you if you zoom in even more, you can often encounter tardigrades. Um, mm. You know that's that's next level of magnification. But there's there's quite a few yeah. things living living right on these lichens. If you um, have a compound microscope, so something you can mount some slides on, then it gets. Um, you know, to the, again, to the next level. So you can take um, uh, like a razor blade and if your lichen is just laying flat in front of you, just slice straight down and then, you know, slice straight down again. So you have a teeny tiny slice um, and put that on a slide. And what you should be able to see is actually the internal structure of the lichen. So um, for many lichens, what you'll see is a really thick layer of fungi at the top. Just below that should be your algal layer. So you'll see a bunch of like green balls. And then just below the algal layer, you should see what looks like a lot of um, loose, loose fungal hyphae, so a lot of air pockets. And then for some, you'll then see a thick bottom layer, but not all of them have that. It might just end at the loose layer. So you, you can actually see sort of what's going on inside inside the lichen. Um, oh, that's so cool. And the structures. And then, of course, yeah, if there are some fruiting bodies, you could do the same sort of slicing approach there. 
and you'd be able to look at the spores that are inside the fruiting body. And that is mm-hmm. um, what we use. We use the spore characteristics a lot to identify lichens. Um, so we use, we start with um, characteristics that we can see, but then for many, many species, we inevitably are back in the lab looking at spores under the microscope. That is so cool to slice it down so that you're looking at the side of it. Yeah. Um, I love that. That will be really cool to see the layers and stuff. That's such a neat, (laughs) I hadn't thought of that before, but it seems so obvious now. I love that. (laughs) That's so cool. So do you have, um, I think people are going to hear this and just want to know more. Um, so do you have any resources that you recommend any books or websites or articles on this topic that we can go and check out and, um, go deeper on this topic? Yeah. Um, there's, there's quite a few things I would recommend, um, a few websites. There is the, American Bryological and Lichenological Society website that not only has some resources itself, but also has links to to other sites. And so that's abls.org. And there is um, a site run by Trevor Goward in the Pacific Northwest, um, who it's called Ways of Enlightenment. (laughs) <laughs> and that has a ton of really beautiful lichen pictures, um, as well as information mm. about lichens. Um, so very accessible. Um, I'm just trying to think. So another one, um, I have to put a plug in for Rick and Jean CV, who, like I mentioned, were some of my earliest uh, lichen mentors and just fantastic people and lichenologists in general. So they also have a site, which is cvfieldguides.com. And that's S-E-A-V-E-Y fieldguides.com. And um, that has some links to some lichen, some more subtropical lichen photos. So a lot of the stuff on ways of enlightenment is uh, temperate species. Mm. Um, There's a number of others in terms of books uh actually you know um entangled life by merlin sheldrake that you mentioned you know does does have a nice section on lichens and it's just i i think a really fun read in general we don't um as far as i know unless i'm totally blanking out we don't have a book that's that does that just all about lichens yet (laughs) but perhaps um i'm working on it um Ooh, I hope so. But of course, if you if if someone who's listening really wants to go deep um, and make a big investment, uh, there is a large and beautiful, but therefore, of course, also a bit expensive book called Lichens of North America, which, you know, you would get that if you really want to start keying out the lichens that you find. Um, so it has information about each species it has gorgeous photographs. Um, and then also, of course, a section at the beginning all about, you know, introducing you to lichens. So, again, if you don't want to mm-hmm. invest in that, perhaps your local library or university uh, has a copy to check out. Ooh, that's a great idea. 
Oh, those are wonderful. Thank you for those resources. So where can everyone go to find, follow, and connect with you? Oh, um, yes. So I am on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at the Lichen Lady. And I have a website. It is www.symbiosiscontinuum.com. All one word. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and yeah, um, I'm sure looking me up, you can find me. I'm, I'm currently speaking to you from England, actually. At, uh, I'm in Norwich, where I'm finishing up my postdoc at the Sainsbury Laboratory. But then soon enough, you should be able to find me on the UC Berkeley Herbarium website as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Clara. This has been oh, amazing talking about lichens and getting so many of my questions answered. And I think this is going to be a really fun episode for people to listen to. So I appreciate your time. And thank you. Um, it's always a delight to talk about lichens. How awesome was that? I hope that you go out and start looking for lichens and seeing them everywhere. I, I know that you will have the lichen eye after this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Joyful Microbe podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you'd like to help others who love microbes to find the podcast, then please leave a rating and a review for the show and tell a friend. To learn more about the Joyful Microbe, head on over to joyfulmicrobe.com where you will find the show notes and all the links and resources mentioned. And if you love Joyful Microbe and would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a virtual tip through coffee. The link is in the show notes and on joyfulmicrobe.com at the bottom of the page. Thanks again, microbe friends. Talk to you next time.